welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hi, friends. Welcome to another roundtable episode where we're going to analyze the latest gaming news. And today I'm joined by Aaron Bush, co-founder of Navic, and Felipe Mata, who is going to self-intro himself. Hi, Felipe. Hi, hello, hello, Maria. Thanks uh, for having me today. So my name is, is Felipe. I've been working in the gaming industry for more than 10 years now. I started uh, as a data scientist at King. There also held a product manager role uh, on the Bubble Witch franchise. I work on Bubble Witch 2 and Bubble Witch 3. And after that, I was also a producer on of new games, all, all in casual. So... I kind of have touched different uh, ways of seeing how to make games from different angles. After that, I moved to Theptolab, where I was the, the head of new games. I participated in the, the, the latest releases that Theptolab has, has done. And now I'm with FanPlus. Uh, so we are building a studio. I'm building a studio here in, in Barcelona uh, to create uh, casual puzzle games. And we are already starting to create the the, the, the well, looking for the first role, so we are hiring. Uh, so looking for for great talent to to create these these new 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 ideas. So very excited about this new new adventure. That's exciting! New roles in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. What is the weather like? Just make me jealous. Yeah, it's sunny. It's like uh, like warm uh, even in these these days. So wow. uh, we can't complain. I'm so jealous, making new <laughs> games in the sun. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for joining today. And we have a really exciting group of topics. So we'll be covering Invest Games Gaming Deals Report Highlights, which analyzes 2020 to 2022. Um, Embracer and Stillfront's earnings tie, all tied up with talking about the future of the growth by acquisition model. And also looking at Roblox's generative AI announcement and doing a tie-in with the earnings and some other topics. So yeah, lot, lots to get through today. And yeah, we'll start actually with Invest Game. And I just want to do a shout out to Anton Gorodesi, who sometimes joined us here on the panel, who's part of co-founding Invest Game. So yeah, Aaron, what, what did we learn from that report? Uh, yeah, let me find my notes. I just lost some. Oh, here we are. So yeah, um, so Investgame <laughs> just published its latest report. And this one essentially covers um, 2020 through 2022. Um, so it gives a good coverage of, of recent history. And I won't cover all of the numbers. But I mean, the highlights are that in 2022, it was generally a, a mean reversion year for deal making, And that's not surprising, because from 2020 to 2021, both private investments and in M&A were up, trouble, were up triple digit percentages and public offerings were up about 60%. And it's impossible to see that kind of growth or even growth from those like new heights um, year after year. And so from 21 to 2022, the value of private investments in gaming fell about 16%. M&A was up slightly, um, which was driven by much fewer but bigger deals and public offerings plummeted over 80% over the the year prior, just given the tough 
market environment. So, you know, looking forward, um, I don't know if I would expect too much change on like the private investment front. Um, I would expect that, you know, as the market levels out, there are companies that would want to go public. So hopefully we'll see some some new action there ramp up a bit over the 80% decline of the past year, although it still is kind of a tough environment out there. So we'll see when exactly that happens. But the report digs into, you know, the details of that, the deals, the investors. Um, Navek, we also contributed to the report, especially around making sense of the the boom and bust cycle that we saw in Web3 gaming. And that's an impact on deal making and all the money raised around that. So um, so anyways, yeah, make sure to, to check it out. Uh, we link to it in our, uh, I guess at this point, the last Novic Digest newsletter. So you can you can check that out there. Of course, go to the Invest Game website. Was there any surprising patterns or uh, learnings that you took away? Well, I think it's to me just seeing like how volatile like the public market like raises can be is always pretty surprising. How um, you know, companies raising money like that does ebb and flow depending on the market cycles um, and with more like private companies and VCs. But on the public side, it's just so market driven. And so to see an 80 percent decline over the past year, um, that's that's pretty huge. Um, and of course, you know, these numbers are volatile, too, just depending on like if you have one big company that goes public like that in and of itself could dramatically change those numbers. So yeah, I guess I would just be looking forward partially at, uh, you know, what's going to happen there over the next year. And with so much consolidation too, just going around in the industry, like, uh, uh, like, you know, even with like Microsoft buying Activision Blizzard or, or something, or, you know, you know, companies scooping in to try to buy Aerovia, just the number of like the notable public companies, the publishers and game studios, uh, you know, it's it's going to be trending down unless, you know, more come out. Um, and I always enjoy just learning about companies when they're public. So hopefully we see a bit of a bit of a change there over the next couple of years. With the February coming to an end, is there are there any signals with this year that would show a different trend comparing to last year? Um, I don't know. I, I guess we'll see how how it, how it plays out. You never know how how the things can change as the year goes by, sure. right? And just how market dynamics can can change because you know there still are recession fears, and maybe we'll like narrowly escape a recession, and maybe that'll have some impact on how the market plays out and provide some confidence to companies going public. But you know, yeah. any any changes in the world <laughs> could have an impact on on market dynamics. So I don't know. I wouldn't overly overly just guess on how that's going to go down, at least at least for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we'll move into the next update then. I'm going to be looking at Marvel's Midnight Suns, the release and the sales results, and then also looking at Firaxis, like what's coming next to that studio because they have some changes now in terms of leadership. I have no idea how to pronounce Firaxis. Is it Firaxis? Is it Firaxis? Axis on fire? <laughs> No idea. <laughs> I'm going to go with Firaxis and hope and hope is correct. Okay, so I looked at the results of Midnight Suns, and I think the description that I got for its release was a hot pot. So it released in December 2022 on new-gen consoles and also Windows. 
Take-Two in their earnings, they reported that the sales fell short of expectations. And also just looking at the feedback from players, it really didn't stick the landing. It has some game-breaking bugs, which having game-breaking bugs during the holiday season when people really want to play the games that they that they purchased, that's just not good for your for your ratings. And so the elevator pitch of what this game is is like XCOM and Slay the Spire wrapped in Marvel's heroes that are fighting an apocalyptic threat. This is how I managed to distill what this game was. And so it really sounds cool. It sounds refreshing. I looked at some gameplay and it looked extremely fun, but it really screams that it's for a niche audience. And so I think the expectations as well of turn-based combat, map exploration, um, meaning meaningful narrative, we look at games like Divinity and Baldur's Gate, and they just completely smashed into that genre. And so the player expectation that is already into that kind of games, they just have that high level of quality that they're expecting. And so I personally think that is not fully surprising that the sales fell short of expectations. And I just have some really hindsight takeaways that we can learn from, from this particular release. So I think that Firaxis could have aimed to do less and deliver really high quality design than trying to check so many ambitious check marks. It's like meaningful narrative, map exploration, turn-based combat, some cars added to this element. They're just trying to do so much. And also the game's targeting a niche audience and wrapping it in a Marvel IP is not enough to convince the mass market to join into such a niche gameplay. Um, and not just that, I think there's a reputation that this kind of turn-based card games on console has painful UX, which makes it even more niche. I don't think the sales performance expectations were adjusted for the addressable market that this was targeting. So they could have fell even shorter than was originally forecasted. And then also, and this is, I think is really important. The game's release was originally delayed from October to the beginning of December, which means that you're now releasing your game in an extremely competitive month of the year, where if you're not a big franchise IP like FIFA, Call of Duty, God of War, you're really going to struggle. And then that added into the game breaking bugs that tanks your reviews. They just were not in a good position to really stick that landing. And so a question that I actually have for the group is that, I think one concern that I have is seeing a studio that tried to take a chance in making this new refreshing niche game and then the sales fall short of expectations. I just it just fuels my fears that studios are going to take like less risks and trying to innovate on gameplay. So yeah, what what do you think? Is this unfounded? Well, I, I would say that uh, I, I agree on, on this, right? And and you can see even the trend with uh more studios leveraging on IP, existing IP, and just try to wrap uh, that IP into an existing mechanic that they have. So not going so much into innovation of the mechanics that is tough uh, and uh, most likely to to create uh, these, these issues that we have seen with, with this game, but leverage on the potential of the IP to like make an existing game to reach a broader audience. So I would say that that definitely yes. And even re recovering older IPs uh, that have performed in the past and try to just do a, a new release. So delivering more content to the players, but without risking too much. I would, I would just add that it's probably important to pick your moments. Um, and I, I would give Take-Two in general, um, which is the publisher 
um, of this game, a bit of credit for they they have done a good job like over time, both like fostering like success around their biggest IPs and giving people what they want from those IPs. While at the same time, still, you know, trying to spin up new stuff, both through like, you know, you know, internally, you know, their their studios and partnering with, you know, studios like Firaxis, like XCOM even was, you know, something new at some point. Um, and of course, through Private Division, which you know, is how they partner with a bunch of more like indie type studios to maybe not publish like the AAA games, but, you know, can still unlock a lot of interesting game innovations there. But but yeah, if I think you have to be right, <laughs> at least be aligned in terms of like what your expectations are on like what it is you're actually delivering. And it seems like in this case, there was just like a miss on the expectations. Um, I mean, I'm. I actually think this game sounds pretty interesting. I kind of want to play it now the more, yeah. the, more I, the more I hear about it. Um, but I think maybe even more so than like the gameplay itself, which sure is is niche and I'm sure it'll have an impact on, you know, Firaxis's next game. They make sure that it's set up more to succeed than their last one. Um, but yeah, hopefully they can still continue to um, to kind of push the boundaries and such. But, but even so, I think this is more... It, it's partially about the game, but it really is about like the launch window too. Like I do think that probably is like half the the battle here, as you were saying, Maria. Like, yeah, launching in December. Like I didn't even really hear much about this game, even though I think I would be the kind of person that that would like it. So yeah, maybe waiting even a little bit longer would have been the right call because because yeah, I mean, in a time when consumers are being even pickier in what they buy, and like an environment where consumer spending is a bit. Um, a bit pressured and we see you know more like enormous games around like mega ips come out like the latest call of duty game like even though these are two very different games <laughs> like the call of duty modern warfare 2 just completely dominated the holidays mm-hmm. and i'm sure you know took market share from a bunch of other games maybe including even a bit this one so yeah i think it's hard to like simplify the takeaways for the story i think there's quite a a confluence of things that led to the the outcome, but it is interesting to unpack. Yeah. Also, maybe take into account that probably Marvel had some demands about what the game should be and the level of innovation they should have. Uh, They invest a lot in in narrative and they want to to probably leverage on new games to, to tell a new story. So that was probably also adding more complexities. And I don't know if the team was was uh, ready to take all of them together, right? True, yeah, that's such a good point I didn't consider. Okay, so now let's look at what's next for for Axis. So there are some leadership changes. Um, some key, uh, Two key people that were on the Midnight Suns project have left, and now there's a new studio head, which is Heather Hazen, who was previously the COO. And I was reading what she said when um, she took office is that what you call it when someone becomes a studio head i don't know anyway (laughs) so they're going to be doubling down on their civilization ip they confirmed finally to a lot of fans happiness that they are developing a next civilization game i'm just going to call it civ 7 because why not and i think this is really exciting and i hope that they take the opportunity to innovate on the formula because there's an evolving market of forex innovation There's player desire for meaningful narrative choices, uh, growing expectation of UGC. There's the generative AI that maybe can help deliver on this narrative. 
So, oh yeah, hopefully they won't get too afraid of like taking these risky bets from the experience that they got from Midnight Suns and really try to take the civilization formula to the next level. And I looked at Civilization VI. So it's actually nearly six and a half years old, which feels risky for a premium game that relies on DLCs. But like, hats off to the team because it's still consistently one of the best strategy games on Steam charts. It has a really rich modding community. They released now another bundle and until March this year, uh, more content for the game. And so I think they're just showing signals that, yes, Civilization VII is in dev. It's, I think it's going to take maybe at least another three years until we see it, at least from some of the rumors that they only started developing it mid-2021. Um, and so, yeah, they're going to keep sustaining that Civ Six game with content and the longevity, longevity of the product cycle until they can release the new iteration. Um, yeah, and the question I have for you is, so we talked about Midnight Suns and now the extension of Civ Six uh, product lifecycle. So what do you think about them taking this approach of extending Civ Six uh, and try to take a stab at developing this new IP into their portfolio? So do you mean uh, instead of like just maintaining Civ Six or? Well, just tr accelerating the development of Civ Seven by putting more of the team on it. Yeah, I would say that probably they are maybe trying to to go for a bigger change with Civ Seven. I would I would love to see really a cross-platform game where mobile is is delivering as experience as as they 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 could do in in other platforms. I have seen they have a, a mobile version, but like uh, so many bad ratings and like complaints about the, the the performance of the game. I understand that doing this type of games in mobile is is difficult, but for me, I think that it could be maybe a game changer. Right in, in 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 their portfolio to have really a cross-platform game where they can tap into the the mobile audience. So probably if they are taking so much risk, they are willing to to keep investing in the previous game uh, to to have more time to to secure this this bet. I would also just ask, like, isn't it normal to like if it's been I don't know six seven years since the last game to start if you're kind of nearing kind of like a the big final push for the next game to put more more people on the team to make it over the the finish line it does but they could have done that earlier is what i'm trying to say that they took part of the team to develop midnight suns to try to expand their portfolio past the civ the civilization which is now their flagship ip but oh, instead of trying to prolong from six to let's say nine ten years of the life cycle yeah, they mm. could have had a team try to release earlier Civilization Seven. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think it makes sense for them to try something new too, and you know, expand beyond what they were just doing. But yeah, certainly that didn't maybe work as much as they were planning, and it would have made more sense to maybe redirect mm. earlier. But you live and you learn. And on the live and you learn, yeah, Aaron, <laughs> more updates on the Microsoft Activision Blizzard acquisition. They just keep coming. Um, so apparently the leaders of Xbox, PlayStation, plus other representatives of other companies and regulators have been meeting this week, um, I think in Europe, to discuss um, the Microsoft's Activision deal, supposedly hammering out you know, any final issues and concessions. I, I don't think anyone, not many people know what's going on behind the closed doors, really. Um, but, um, but yeah, we've... 
we've seen some action since then. It's also possible by the time by the time this episode is published, everything I say will be outdated. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, as of we're recording on Wednesday, we've already seen a couple announcements made. Um, and it seems like mostly politicking until the the deal really goes through. But there does seem to be some momentum out there. But a couple pieces to to what has been announced over the past day or so. First, uh, according to Brad Smith, who's the vice chair and president of Microsoft, Microsoft and Nintendo signed a 10-year agreement to bring Call of Duty to Nintendo players the same day as Xbox with full features. Um, <laughs> and actually, it's interesting that it's Microsoft signing the deal even before they own Activision, right? Um, and by the time everything goes through, I, I mean, I would expect that this really applies more to like the Switch 2, like whatever that next generation of the Switch really is that Call of Duty is going to be living on for the next largely 10 years or so. Um, but anyways, you know, they're just, this is, you know, Microsoft trying to show that, of course, Call of Duty, the crown jewel, it's going to be everywhere. We want all gamers everywhere to have access to this thing. It's not something that we're going to use to our own advantage for antitrust purposes. Um, and Microsoft also struck a 10-year deal with NVIDIA and its GeForce Now cloud gaming surface service to bring all Xbox PC games to GeForce Now. Um, and I think it was the UK regulators who viewed cloud gaming as like the next battleground for antitrust and like the, the video games industry, which, um, you know, is, is obviously a bit off. But, but either way, you know, giving this level of games access to its number one cloud gaming competitor on PC um, is hopefully one way for Microsoft to appease regulators, at least on that bullet point of, of the argument. Um, so I guess like in total, Microsoft is clearly pulling out all the stops to make concessions and try to try to pull this, this deal off. Um, I have a feeling Sony behind the closed doors is still pretty heavily opposing the deal. Um, um, but you know, if you line up Sony's dominant console market share, Plus all these concessions Xbox is making, I, I do increasingly struggle to see how it makes sense for regulators to oppose the deal. And I, that's sort of the stance I've, I've been making, you know, just on antitrust grounds since the beginning. But, you know, the more these concessions we see kind of roll in, the more that I think that makes sense. Um, so, so, yeah, it's been interesting to see. I bet we're, we're nearing the end of this saga soon enough. <laughs> we'll have a final final yes or no approval denial from all regulators before um, too long. So hopefully that happens soon enough and we can get past the the speculative stage and move on to like the concrete, you know, talking about like what is actually next. But, but that's the update on that this week. Well, there's still a saga of Sony. Well, Sony, is it now in a corner where they should accept the terms of the 10 years versus the possibility of the acquisition being approved and they lose that that contract? I don't know. It's hard to say what's really going on behind the closed doors again. And again, it wouldn't even surprise me too if it's more the regulators that push for a deal like that and not mm -hmm. even necessarily Sony for the deal to go through. But um, yeah, if I, I mean, if I were in Sony's shoes, I also would probably be opposing the deal until the very last moment to protect my own turf so i i get it well geforce now is 
going to be in a, a couple of car brands, I think, to be playable within cars. <laughs> so I think that this is going to destroy some relationships because you're meant to go shopping with your partner and your partner's like, sorry, I want to stay in the car. I want to play one more Warzone match. Wow. Yeah, I know. Great joke, right? Anyway, let's carry on and forget <laughs> about this. Uh, Felipe, <laughs> so tell us about Blizzard's back to the office mandate, just because we love talking about Blizzard. <laughs> okay, yeah. So uh, the Activision Blizzard has uh, ordered employees to return to working on site uh, under the allegation that it will foster better collaboration. So what they are proposing is a hybrid format uh, with three days per week at the office and, and two days still in, in remote. And this hasn't uh, been received very well by some employees who have publicly complained on, on Twitter about it. And some journalists even point out that it could be viewed as, as a form of mass dismissal or trying to, to foster attrition. Uh, and only long, like uh, it could potentially delay uh, upcoming titles that they have, like Diablo 4. So, yeah, it's a, quite an interesting, interesting move uh, here. Um, also, like uh, another option that people are speculating is that it could be that now the company sees the opportunity to, to regain uh, authority and because people will be a bit more afraid of losing a job and uh, won't be like hoping uh, moving to other jobs. Uh, so it's quite interesting for me. Um, I'm not sure if they are going for this strategy of uh, fostering some attrition to cut costs on uh, potential layoffs that they could have in the future or that they, they foresee they, they would need. I'm not sure if it's a good strategy, right? Because the proportion of A players that you lose this way is much bigger than than if you like do it more selective. And we, we know that uh, top talent is is really important to uh, to create new games and, uh, and keep moving the, the industry forward. So so it's strange. I don't know. You have any any thoughts on this? I think that the jury is still out whether full remote work is good for AAA production. I don't I don't know. And so this could be a reaction to a drop in quality and productivity. I have no idea, but I don't think there's an exact answer of how can you coordinate a team of hundreds of people to deliver a high quality game. But it's also interesting that they cut the profit sharing bonus when it was one of their best years. I don't fully understand that. Yeah, yeah. I was going to, to comment on that as well because it it was announced in a in a company all hands where they were like sharing doing it because the, there was a survey and uh, the management had uh, faced a criticism and then they they, they announced this and uh, well it it was like something like could be perceived as a another extra uh, motivation for making me leave. Uh, so I'm not happy with the new policy of back to work and now this on top, uh, when you are like uh, uh, doing very well financially, it's not, uh, a, a bit strange. And uh, even like the the president uh, remarked like uh, in a message, like kind of like uh, this, if you don't like this policy, well, take it or leave it. So... Yeah, so you're... 
is okay if you're not comfortable uh, answering this question. But you're you're leading the the building of a new studio. So do you have any thoughts about the remote work? And if you're trying to build new or very complex games, do you have a take on whether it is possible to do it remotely? So um, we have uh, established a similar policy for, for our studio. So we are also going to work hybrid. So three days per week at the office and two days, two days remote. I appreciate the advantages that the remote gives you as a person, as an individual, right? That that freedom uh, and uh, uh, like saving time commuting and, and all that stuff. But in my perception and, and also uh, other people here at, at FanPlus, we believe that in order to create new ideas and new games, uh, you want you need this uh, close collaboration of the team that they they work together. Is for me, it's much more efficient being in the same room with a whiteboard uh, to to like discuss ideas and uh, and collaborate than doing it uh, remote. So we are like, despite that, we know that this is something that makes uh, finding talent more difficult. We have, mm. we have come from this from, from the very beginning, and especially also because we are establishing a new studio. So the people that we hire will probably don't know each other. So you need to build this relationship. It's not the same if you've been a team that has worked together for several years face to face. Then you move to work uh, remote. Maybe that could work, or uh, for sure it will work better than uh, people that haven't uh, worked together at all, right? So. Uh, our take here is also that uh, in order to, to to be competitive in this market and create uh, and, and and innovate, you need to to work together in the same office at least sometime. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, well, we'll move on then to one of our deep dive topics today. Where, yeah, Aaron, so what have you found about growth by acquisition? You talked about this um, in a past episode. So if you want to hear Aaron's first take, you can go and listen to that Embracer topic. But I'm curious if your take has changed. Um, so uh, a little bit. And I think it's it's more, it's just interesting to see how these growth by acquisition companies have changed with this, the changing market environments. Like they don't operate the same way that they used to. And we can dig into that. But really, I mean, this topic is kind of spurred on right now because we've now seen both Stillfront and Embracer um, publish their latest earnings reports over the past um, uh, couple weeks. Um, so we could figure it's interesting just to take a look at what these two companies are up to. And then we can maybe talk a bit big picture about what's changing here and what even makes sense for the strategy as a whole. Um, but to to start, obviously, both of these companies have similarities, right? They're both Sweden-based. They're both historically reliant on heavy growth by acquisition. Uh, but they're also very different. So Stillfront is majority a mobile gaming company with 78 games across a range of genres. And Embracer is a much bigger business. It has over 16,000 employees and 134 internal studios. But, you know, most importantly, you know, it operates across console PC, mobile, tabletop games where it actually has like pretty high market share in that that industry, comics and, you know, just other entertainment services. And so we'll talk about the big picture, but just to drill in a little bit on on both of these companies. So, um Let's start with Stillfront. So Stillfront this quarter saw 24% revenue growth. Um, all of that growth is acquired growth. And most of it comes from 
one acquisition of six of six waves, which is an acquisition that gave them exposure to more of like the, I think it's like the Japanese market, but uh, East Asian uh, market. Um, and organic growth is negative, um, just down. It's like one, down one or two percent. But you know the the way that Silfront frames it is like it is down, but it is ahead of the the market as a whole. And considering that they're working with a bunch of like a large portfolio, some of which are more legacy games that 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 is still you know considered a win in in their books. Silfront, of course, is also a very profitable business, and like any company with a big portfolio, it has both hits and misses in any given quarter. But one thing I find interesting, just to kind of pull out an interesting um, piece of data, is that they grew marketing spend in 2022 29% year over year, but they actually saw notable declines in you know monthly active users daily active users monthly paying users part of that is obviously att driven but part is driven too by pausing a subsidiary in bangladesh that's being investigated for allegedly facilitating illegal gambling and i I don't know exactly what's going on there and i think part of that is just like regulatory changes that they're kind of fighting against over there but um anyways having to pause business basically and that subsidiary you know puts a dent in some of those like user numbers at, at least and you know this has been a growth by acquisition business but no deals were done this quarter um and so that's interesting to note from the embracer side um we see a similar pattern but almost to like even more dramatic extremes and so uh, you know this is a company that saw triple digit revenue growth year over year also entirely driven by acquisitions, and it too had negative organic growth. Um, and so very interesting. And the games business, from what I can see, has also underperformed as games like Saints Row, I think the kind of the relaunch of, of that game, uh, didn't fare the best. Um, and of course, this is a company I mentioned they have 134 <laughs> internal studios, which is crazy. Um, and so they still have a massive, diverse pipeline a bunch of, across a bunch of stuff. They're trying to spin up their more AAA games and get, I think, more consistent in their launches to have more consistent financials. Uh, but one thing that's interesting is that um, as the, acquis- the acquisitive market slows a bit, um, they too are also focused more on organic growth and just like higher ROI on their games business. And so... Um, one thing they're doing is they're looking to reduce risk and earn more guaranteed profits from working with other publishers. And so one big deal that happened this quarter was partnering with Amazon to publish the Tomb Raider, for example, uh, which is now an Embracer IP. Um, and uh, Navic Digest also just dug into a bit into their tabletop side of things, which has been pretty strong. Um, but anyways, we, we could talk more about like the high level growth by acquisition just strategy in a moment for these two companies and what's changed. But before we do that, I just wanted to pause there and see if either of you wanted to comment at all on any of the details, earnings results or otherwise of these two companies and what's going on. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say that we spoke at the beginning, right? Like creating new games is getting challenging and challenging and like, um, uh... That's the way to, to, to keep growing, right? If you don't do acquisition, right? And so I think that it's, it's intelligent to focus on one of the strategies, right? And like double down on that one and do it doing it properly. I think that they, they obviously are doing 
very good with the acquisitions that's managing to to keep growing, right? What I'm not sure is that maybe with that focus, they are not empowering the existing uh, groups that they have uh, to, to really keep growing their uh, portfolio and like operate better the existing games or release new games. And that's probably causing them to uh, not see the potential growth that they could have, right? Because ideally, uh, you would like to see that, okay, you grow by acquisition, but also the companies that you acquire in the past keep growing themselves, right? So it's like uh, everything grows and it's a multiplier. I don't know. Maybe that that could be that I didn't choose very well where to invest, but I doubt it, right? So I think that probably is like the ecosystem is not fostering this. Yeah, I think Felipe has uh, a really good take there. That I do wonder, I still don't fully understand how do you manage an organization that has that amount of people and companies all trying to develop new games. So I'd love to get more insight in into how they operate. But the, the question I had to you, Aaron, is, is there space in this business model to have a new competitor enter the market or are Embracer and Stillfront just too dominant and the barrier of entry is extremely high? The barrier to entry is just being willing to spend a lot of money. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so fair, I fair. think so. I think uh, they're not the only ones. You could even say someone like Tencent is, you know, like a, a bit similar in this regard in terms of like how it has done so much M and A and you know investments over time. It's it's a bit different. We don't have as clear of a view into the details of that that market or that the company. But um, there are others. There are other smaller companies. Two that aren't as big as Stillfront and Embracer that have a similar strategy, um, but it is interesting, right? Because Stillfront, just to comment on, like, could they do more for their internal studios? Like, it's hard to manage. I think it is hard to manage uh, when you have that many pieces for like a central team to like really make sure that everyone is executing well. I do think there can be some value in having a decentralized model that kind of pushes decision making more like down the org if you have great like leaders, almost great, like entrepreneur types, like leading these independent companies, I think you can still do pretty well if you do a good job of picking those people and picking those those um, companies to acquire. But Stillfront, for example, they have like their StillOps program, which is, you know, how they try to share learnings across teams. I don't know if Embracer has something like that. Um, but yeah, I think it's fair. I also would push back and we can kind of segue the conversation maybe into like more of the growth by acquisition strategy here. I would push back and say that just because the numbers went up a lot for growth by acquisition, it doesn't actually necessarily mean that they did the best job. Um, and there are a couple of reasons why. But like the where like the yellow flags start to show here is that if you look at Embracer, for example, sure, over the past year, its sales have more than doubled, but the stock price is still down over fifty percent from its highs. So something something isn't adding up and there's a difference between growing your business and growing your value for shareholders if you look at it that way and the case that that I would make is that this this style of growth by acquisition was a byproduct of like the zero interest rate uh environment that was going on over the past 2-3 years and I've talked about this a little bit before, but maybe just to kind of like just super briefly recap when uh, 
for either of these companies, if you, you know, bunch of bunch of bunch of studios together, um, and that creates, you know, it makes it look like you have higher growth for your business. It makes your, uh, you know, your company trade at a higher value. When you're when you trade at a higher value, you can leverage your shares to do even more deals, which continues to grow. And it's like this positive feedback cycle that that works really well on the way up. And of course, it's propped up too by like the market looking for growth and giving the benefit of the doubt for uh, for these kinds of companies, so that naturally they are priced higher. But uh, eventually, um, mean reversion happens and you kind of revert back to the the quality of the deals that you made. Um, and so if you acquire companies that are not growing, right, um, then you're not going to be priced as a company that is growing as quickly as like you once saw. And naturally, when the market changes and the deal making kind of that music stops or at least slows down a lot, like, uh, you know, your growth by acquisition um, like what's going to be possible there also has to slow down too. And also in a market that's competitive, like you're probably paying up prices that are maybe higher than they should have been. So, so anyways, I think there, there was a little bit of value destruction that kind of happened across this growth by acquisition spree. And now we're seeing these companies change course, which is interesting. And so, as I mentioned, Stillfront has not, they didn't do uh, an acquisition this quarter. Um, Embracer, we'll see. They're they're a bit all over the place still, and not even just in gaming, right? Yeah, so I, I agree. I think that uh, like even on top of what you say, like when 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 the market conditions change and get worse, right? Uh, I think like part of the value that was seen on this uh, strategy was that okay, you you acquire all these companies and then you like made them keep growing, right? And when you don't do that, right, uh, probably is when like investors lose lose trust in you and they don't don't believe that the the future ahead is so brilliant, right? Because you only depend on on acquiring other companies to keep growing, and if the market conditions are bad, then you don't trust that that strategy is going to work so well, right? So I think it's it's a vicious cycle there. Um, also, probably they they haven't proved to to have managed to create synergies between the companies that they've acquired that makes the 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 individuals together better than they were individually right and this is probably something that they should focus their strategy a lot right because this is what could make the difference you have a lot of creative talent in different companies but they don't talk to each other they don't share knowledge with each other they don't leverage on tools uh, or even data it's Sometimes it could be that data is hard to uh, like put together, right? Yeah. From the different sources, right? So if you cannot leverage on all these, then you are losing the advantage that you have from being a big group. And then you don't create organic value and then investors will be a bit more reluctant to trust that the future ahead is more brilliant. Have you seen the same signals in Embracer that they're slowing down acquisitions and focusing on optimizing their current portfolio? I think a little bit. Um, and I think they've had some commentary about needing to deleverage um, because they've taken on a lot of debt. And so reducing their debt load um, is, I think, going to be more part of their strategy. And just how they're talking about acquisitions, it seems more like they're going to be choosier 
and their bats, not that it's going to stop, but that they're going to be maybe a bit more measured. Um, but we'll see. We'll see how that really plays out. I do think the synergy point that you brought up, Felipe, is interesting. And I, th- I do think that um, even between these two companies, how they approach synergies is different. I think the market originally maybe was like slightly too harsh on um, saying that there are not synergies in these companies. I think with Stillfront, uh, they're obviously trying with their StillOps platform and you know, sharing content research, they're sharing game engines to, across studios and, and things like that. So there is something there. But when you are just game studios, there's only so much that you can share um, across uh, across teams, right? Whereas an Embracer, it's it's not just a games business. They also have comics and board games. And again, Chrome crashed, so I lost my notes. I'm sorry, everybody. But in my notes somewhere, <laughs> I think there was a note about how um, internally um, Asmodee, which is like their you know flagship board game company that they own, uh, how they spotted it was like 25 or 26 opportunities internally to work with video game IP to spin up like interesting interesting board games. And you could say the same probably across comics and vice versa across, you know, uh, just styles of games. And so I do think that there is something interesting there. And as Embracer has spent a lot of money, even if it hasn't been the most efficient at times, to purchase like more and more IPs, um, there could be, it is a company that could find ways to actually do more things with them than if they were just a game studio. And so I think the synergies there there still is a lot to be proven, but I think the surface area of what is possible is a bit wider. Um, so that's what I think. But anyways, Maria, I'm curious if you have any take on any of this growth by acquisition stuff, any of this synergies. Do you think anything is over or underrated? I don't know. Whoa. Can't unmute myself. <laughs> um, I don't have anything to add, really. I think the two of you have given great takes. Um, I do have questions. Can I ask questions? Please. Cool. So is reducing the debt even more important now that the interest rates went up? It's just more costly to repay that. Um, it depends on the debt. Some debt is has like fixed interest rates. And so if they raise, raise the debt at lower interest rates and it's fixed, it's fine. But some debt might be variable. I don't know 100% with these companies what the split is between fixed and variable rate debt. Um, but in general, I would just say that like, um, having high net debt on your balance sheet, it just reduces the flexibility of your company. When you have lots of cash, you have much more optionality to do different things. Like you can tackle more opportunities, but when the, when your balance sheet is flipped, you, you first and foremost have to spend your focus just making sure that you are protected and it's a more defensive position more so than an offensive position. And so sometimes it's worth it if you take on a lot of debt to buy something really awesome that can turbocharge your business. Um, and maybe they've done a, a little bit of that, and maybe with like like board games or something. But um, in general, just deleveraging the business um, should put them in a position to, if they want to one day to be more aggressive again, they'll be able to do it more realistically. And is deleveraging a polite term to selling portfolio companies? Well, by deleveraging, I just mean that like if Embracer generates profits and positive cash flows as a business, that instead of using those cash flows to just 
sit as cash or to go acquire something else. They'll just use it to actively pay down debt. Um, but of course, if they want to accelerate that deleveraging, then of course they could look to sell to sell assets um, and then use the proceeds for further pay down debt. I don't know if they'll do that. Um, maybe Embracer will change their mind at some point. They don't like their empire building the way they've done it, and they'll maybe want to spin some things off or sell them, and that's that's fine. But whether that'll all go towards deleveraging or whether it'll go towards just even maybe spinning things off as standalone companies, I think that's TBD. Yeah, I, I don't believe that they are going to to sell much more now in much because like they, they are investors, right? And like investors buy low and sell high and they, they've done the opposite. They have buy high. I don't believe that they are going to sell low now because now most of the things are lower value that they used to be when they, we were growing faster. So and that's probably why they are not buying anything now because like many, many, many companies don't want to sell now. Because now they are much less valued than they used Got to be it. a year ago, and they they perceive that they are losing the opportunity to keep operating for a longer uh, time independently, and then uh, sell later. Yeah, that's actually a really great point on the, the the buying high and selling low. So there are companies out there, maybe not as much in the games industry, but just in general, who. They actually, they're very much growth by acquisition, aggressive growth by acquisition, and they have negative organic growth rates, but they create extreme value for shareholders. And the biggest difference operationally between like those kinds of companies and maybe what we've seen here is that when the market is hot, that's when they're the least active. And when everything falls and is struggling and it's hard times, that's when they start to become more aggressive and do more M&A and such. So it'll be interesting to see too, if these, even if these two companies or other just M&A in the industry, it almost has felt like the opposite, um, just industry-wide. But I do think that some of the smartest companies could um, make smart moves, kind of zag <laughs> when, when others are zigging, right? And... Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, just time the market cycles differently and get better prices. Exactly. And now cash is keen. So yeah, I don't know if using the cash now for for uh, lowering the debt uh, is the best strategy or it's better to use it to, to buy cheaper now that everybody's willing to get cash. Well, it'll be interesting to go back to these earnings in the next quarter because we, it's always a good opportunity to keep evaluating the business model in itself quarter on quarter. So we're going to move on to the last deep dive of this roundtable. And yeah, Felipe, this Roblox generative AI. So what's, what's happening there? Okay, so Roblox had uh, the Q4 earnings for 2022 uh, recently. And on top of presenting the company's results that I will uh, provide some highlights a bit later, they announced that they are developing generative AI tools to assist developers in creating games and assets more easily. So these tools that they announced uh, include code acceleration, 3D model acceleration, avatar creation, or 3D material creation, among other stuff. They also mentioned some MPC and and other stuff. Um, 
And the interesting thing is this is not like a fluffy announcement of the kind, like we find this area interesting and we will work on it. They actually showcase a couple of tools with a video uh, that they share in, in, in a blog post. So the, these tools that they, they, they mentioned that will be coming, uh, will be released, released in the coming weeks. Uh, and they include a tool to create a generative AI material. So in the video, we were seeing a car and uh, the material of the car was changing. The color of the car was changing just by inputting text in, in a prompt. And um, the other part of the video was showing like how to generate a, a, with generative AI could complete code or generate code. So they were... Um, texting and like the car was toggling the lights on or off. They were changing the weather to rain. They were making the car fly. So, so it looks very, very, very interesting. Is a problem they're trying to solve is allow someone who has no idea how to code to just go into Roblox and develop a complete mini game by using text prompts? Uh, I'm not sure. I've been like thinking about this uh, from different angles, I have different hypotheses that I, I can uh, throw out. So one is that that uh, you could want to uh, open the platform so m more people can can create stuff. I think that that could probably maybe drive the interest on, of some people to go there for the first time just to create rather than to consume what others did. This could be a possibility. But I think that, that the biggest short-term gain is going to be in actual uh, game makers to be able to deliver more content and more experiences faster, right? Because uh, these are the ones that uh, will leverage these tools to, to not to be able to, to do something that you didn't know before, but to do something that you know how to do, but much faster. So I think that that's where probably they are getting the biggest gain. But another angle that I had was that... Um, these platforms uh, depend a lot of, of, on the content, right? So they, they need to provide constant content. Uh, this is why people go there. Uh, the content needs to be refreshed frequently. And the one potential risk for them could be that other platforms could leverage an AI to generate content faster than they, they do and then steal their dominant position, right? So probably with this move, rather than being thinking on how to improve the platform, they are thinking on how to protect themselves like a defensive strategy for the future, right? So preventing or avoiding that other platforms could do this move earlier than them and then try to, to get like developers to move there and deliver content faster. So what, what so, are your thoughts? What do you think could be the... Well, so if you're, if you're increasing the rate at which content can be created, and I don't know if generative AI this year will be good enough for professional game devs to, to leverage it to build really high quality experiences on Roblox. You increase the quantity of content. I assume that by making it easier to develop content, the quality will also be more mixed and you'll have a lot of content, sorry, I can't, a lot of content quantity with low quality. Um, how will that affect professional game devs that are trying to build experiences for this platform? Because I assume it was just going to flood dis discoverability for your actually really good experience to get eyeballs on it. Yeah, I feel like that they probably need to to 
get smarter about that at uh, well, trying to to help people reach to the better content on the content that is more engaging easier so i think that with this you will have like more variety of content right so i guess that uh, the, the normal thing will be that existing developers could de- deliver better better experiences because they they could focus more time on building the best experience and not on producing assets or uh, like digging details uh, or like investing too much into generate a lot of content because maybe they, they could do it faster so they could think more about how to make the experience better right but there will be others that will be just playing with it and trying to see what they could came out with probably they they, they could uh, publish unfinished experiences because they they are not doing that for business, right? They are doing just for expression. Uh, so I guess it's the same that could happen with other platforms, even like, I don't know, YouTube, right? So finding the right content in YouTube is, is is a challenge for the platform, right? But you don't need to leverage just on the platform to to find that that content, right? So you could leverage on, on other stuff. Which uh, brings me to a, another interesting point is that now with the ecosystem they have, they have like kind of uh, the, the developers that, create experiences, right? And they need like influencers or other people to market that experience, to reach the audience. So they, the developers have the knowledge to deliver the experience, right? To execute. And the influencers have the, the audience, right? And they work together. There is a benefit in working together and the, the audience is connected to the experience, right? But what if the, now the, the influencers can directly create their own experiences and they don't need to work with developers to to do that because they have already the channel to communicate with the players, right? And even like maybe doing this for their audience, like showing how they did it, not just how showing the, the final experience, but how they did it could be also engaging for the audience, right? So what do you think about this? Do you think that this could break a little bit the economics that there are in Roblox right now? Uh, I mean, in general, I think this is interesting. Like, it's a net positive. If it lowers the barriers to creation and makes creation faster, um, that's that should be a win for Roblox as a platform. I do think that it, it might create more competition, right? Like, doing that means more people are more capable of, of creating. Um, and so, sure, maybe certain studios that are built on Roblox that they won't like the increased competition that that comes with more creators, but ultimately, like I think it still is the right decision from a platform point of view. And um, I mean, I've always I've always thought too that uh, besides like the network effect that Roblox has, like its number one advantage that it has competitively is its R and D budget, which is I think it's like it just now hit a run rate of one billion dollars, <laughs> which is which is very large, and there are very few companies that can compete against that. And so this being like one of many ways in which it's like reinvesting to build out its tool set that people can choose to use or not use. Um, like, I think that's that's totally fair and it's interesting and it is a mark of progress. I don't know necessarily like, like sure, influencers can maybe have an easier time creating things and all power to them. That's awesome if more people can create more stuff. But I guess I would probably just add that like, um, 
what AI is going to bring is a lot of great looking crap, right? <laughs> like, um, there, there's a lot of other factors that go into like making great games, right? So like, if an influencer who doesn't know anything about game design or about like building economies or, or anything, they come in, they can maybe build something that looks cool, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a great game that can immediately compete with what like a larger team of more, of more experienced or thoughtful game designers can can bring about so i th i think what this does like again lowering the barriers to entry is great um and making it easier for more people to do more things faster just as an added tool in the toolbox that's great but yeah as you were saying like uh yeah there could it could just lead to more flooding of roblox uh which i would argue we've already It'll be a continuation of a trend that we've already seen for some time. There's a ton, like there's a ton of creators on Roblox that have created a bunch of really bad things. Uh, but the the reason that it works is because of the discoverability that Roblox has in place, and they'll just have to continue to improve and get better at that. With any of these changes, you know, you'll have certain stakeholders that might not be as big of winners as others. But from a platform standpoint. I think all this is is interesting, and it'll improve over time, and they'll iterate and learn from the community. But I like it as an initial first step. Yeah, I, I I'm just so confused about what is the motivation to be on Roblox. I feel I need a panel of Gen Z and maybe some even younger people to understand what they go there to look for. Because are they looking for really complex, fantastic game experiences? Because if they're looking for that, why not? console or PC? Are they looking to just have a place to hang out and do stuff? And so quality and complexity doesn't matter that much. It's just something that's fun. And then you just go through a bunch of experiences with your sessions and your friends. I, I honestly don't know because if they're looking for really complex, great quality experiences, then you know, is generative AI going to help deliver that? It wouldn't be influencers delivering that as, as Aaron stated. So I, not knowing the player motivation is hard to answer. I think looking, what I don't fully understand is from the financial performance and growth of the company, what problem of adding, what problem they're trying to solve by adding more quantity of content and adding more creators. So I think with the, with the earnings, they increased revenue, they increased their DAU, which is massive but they had a decrease in the average bookings per DAU. Is that correct? Yeah, is it correct? But I will also like understand, right? Like if, if you have increased massively your DAU, so they, they've increased uh, in the, the, the last quarter in average, it was almost 60 million. So 99, 19% year over year growth, but it reached 65 million high in January of daily active users in average during the January month. So it's a massive increment in, in users. So I understand that uh, with this growth in users, you still like have a lower amount of uh, bookings per DAU, but it's still the, 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 the decline on, on the bookings per DAU was only 2% year over year. So they've grown a lot in active users, but the monetization hasn't drop so much. So that means that the, the ratio is, is that they are still monetizing better or at least like the existing existing users. They were mentioning that uh, 
the, a larger proportion of players are payers over time, so that the, the payers uh, are growing and that they keep paying. So it was a quite interesting graph. It was showing like the return and payers growing uh, month after month. So I think that they, that's working for them. And indeed, one of the key reasons that they, they mentioned for this growth uh, especially it was uh, in December and January, but in general, uh, was thanks to more content and better content. So I think that AI right. will help into the more content, definitely, no doubts about it. Whether it, that will help with the better content, this is something that as we are debating, not so sure, and they, they probably need to double down on how to make uh, better, easier to find the better content, right? Yeah, I would just add that bookings often lag user growth. Um, and so seeing the user growth is the most important. Also, just as they've been expanding to new parts of the world, like users just have different bookings levels. Um, and so I wouldn't obsess over that particular metric too much. You really just want to see user growth and engagement growth. And if they're doing a good job building, supporting creators and building out the platform, like the bookings should, per user, should eventually um follow I, I guess i would just kind of like i mean the player framing here this isn't even necessarily just about players i mean i think i just view this it's just another tool in the toolbox um for for creators and they can take it or leave it and th these tools these ai related tools they'll this is a starting point like they'll in increase more over time and i think it is a pretty big value add that like if you can save time by using ai related tools for like your in-game artwork or planning out a map or something like that that is worthwhile and then you can spend more time owning other parts <laughs> of your game and and that you can get some improvement and quality from that but in general just as a platform standpoint they want more people creating they want more people creating more stuff and have an easier time um creating and if creators are succeeding more and more, then eventually players will succeed more and more. And complexity, like super complex games, like that, yeah, that's not really what Roblox is right now. But I mean, Roblox is still mainly like kids and like younger teenagers that aren't necessarily looking for that. But all of these pieces can maybe add together to help some of that complexity come to life in the future. But I don't think that's really really the point i also just view it again as i mentioned like all of these ways for it to grow it just increases the competitive competitive advantage for roblox as a type of platform um that as we see the launch of other ugc type platforms in the future the more that roblox can kind of push ahead on these kinds of features the harder it will it'll be for those new platforms to compete along every dimension and compete for creators first and foremost which is then what leads to to users so, well, their, so that's my view. Their core strategy talks about aging up your audience. And so if you want to age up your paying audience, you also have to age up your content, I assume. So that's why I assume they're trying, they will have to build complex, more complex, high quality games to have that aging up. So you mentioned the R&D budget. Is Roblox profitable? Um, I think it has depended. I mean, I don't think they're profitable from like a net income standpoint i think they have been free cash flow <laughs> profitable which you know like adjust it's like the actual cash that they get in and out and they were very very profitable over covid and then used a lot of those profits to then further reinvest 
accelerate reinvestments into hiring and such to build out more of these features. Not not 100% sure where they are right now, but they're in a they're in a fine spot. And of course, like the biggest like variable here for them is just like if there are any regulatory changes on, you know, app stores that change that 30% mm-hmm. fee uh, to something something lower and naturally the creators will be the biggest beneficiaries of that because they'll Roblox will share even more of the proceeds with with them but Roblox itself would become even more profitable too. I think this is a natural point to wrap up all of these really deep dive discussions today. Yeah, well, thank you, Felipe, Aaron, for joining today. Looking forward to what comes next in the following quarter for the growth by acquisition and also seeing what kind of content the generative AI within Roblox will will create when that's released. So thank you so much and we'll see you all next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.